think if we look like 10 to 20 years down the road in the Southeast, I would love to be really a critical component to this sort of flywheel of high growth entrepreneurship really taking root in our region. If you're a founder, you start your company, you're immediately thinking at some point we're going to apply to Endeavor and hopefully become a part of that network. Hello, and welcome to Funded, a podcast by Pixel Recess. I'm your host, Mark, as we explore the startup and funding market in Atlanta and the Southeast this season. Today, I spend some time with Aaron Hurst, the founding managing director of the Atlanta chapter of Endeavor. Endeavor is a global nonprofit dedicated to helping amazing companies scale. Endeavor sits in a unique position in the ecosystem of the Southeast. It's not really a VC, though it does invest in its portfolio companies. It's not a local mastermind or a CEO roundtable. Its scope is massive, and becoming a part of the network can take sometimes a year or more, but joining the network can transform the size of a business. Thank you for listening. As always, please be sure to subscribe to and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, to connect with us, please visit pixelrecess.com. Now enjoy Aaron. Aaron Hurst. I'm the managing director of Endeavor Atlanta. I founded Endeavor's Atlanta office here in 2017. I'm a, a dad of three. I'm originally from Pittsburgh, moved to DC as a kid, and then eventually ended up at Georgia Tech as an undergrad in the late 90s. I've worked most of my career in high growth technology companies, including one here in Atlanta that went public and is still public called Manhattan Associates and have spent my time around high tech and high growth for most of my career. And now lucky enough to get to work with entrepreneurs every day here at Endeavor. All right. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh until I think I was in fourth grade. And then we moved to DC and then DC through high school. But I'm a Pittsburgh kid, like from a sports and blood perspective, I have that blue collar kind of mentality, which is not always a good thing. My mom was a nurse. I remember as a kid, my mom would be working shifts. So she would work at night, have breakfast with us, and then go into her room to pass out for the day. And then my dad was a social worker. He was a semester away from graduating with an electrical engineering degree and decided that engineering is not going to be for him and switched to social working his senior year at Pitt and then became a licensed social worker. So he was working at the United Way in Pittsburgh. So he would go to work nine to five during the day. And my mom would have the opposite shift for a lot of my childhood before we moved to DC. That's a pretty helpful group of folks, a a nurse and a social worker. How did that affect who you were and what you wanted to do? I'd like to say, I guess I have high EQ and generally high empathy, which also means I'm really bad at hiring people because I end up loving everyone I interview, especially the good in everybody. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So (laughs) You see what everybody could be, even if they're not, even if they're not that yet. That's right. That's right. (laughs) So I, anytime we hire anyone, I have my team do most of the vetting and I try and limit my involvement at least to from a risk uh, assessment perspective. But nothing particularly entrepreneurial. So when you went to school, what did you study? I went to tech, I studied industrial engineering. I actually co-opted at Manhattan Associates. I was like the 100th employee there as a co-op. So I was working in customer support for them when there were probably four people in support. And we were pretending like we were full-time employees to our big customers. My big customer was Jockey Underwear or Jockey International, I think is the name of the company. They sell t-shirts and underwear. And they thought I was a full-time employee graduate of Georgia Tech. Little did they know in in about two months time, I was going to tell them, I have to leave for a few months, but you're going to have this other person come in and be your support person. And they realized, oh, this guy's still in school. That was my kind of first taste of work 
working in a high growth company. And I think that from that point, 1997, about 100 people when I joined Manhattan to the time I came on full time, we probably had 600 people, maybe 700 and wow. 20 offices around the world. We were public at that point. So I got to witness the kind of good and the bad and the ugly of a high growth environment like that, which was pretty unique. Leaving Manhattan Associates, I was actually recruited by executives that ran professional services for them. And they were starting the North American office of a French software company. So it had the backing of an existing product and existing investors, but was really like a startup. We were four people that inherited a couple of, of big deals that the French company had sold here in the US, which right. turned out to be a disaster because they oversold sure. everything, of course. And of we course. had to figure that out and then grow a US business for the company. That's now, It's now called Symphony AI. So that was a, not completely a startup, but very much had the feeling and trappings of a startup and trying to trying to you, figure out product market fit in the US. Did you want to do a startup? Did, were, you, were you more of an employee guy at that point? The thing that's most interesting for me is learning. So whenever I assessed my career, and I, I still think I do this today, it was less about, is it a startup? Am I going to go join as employee number two? And it was more about which opportunity provides the best avenue to really push me to be a better leader, to learn a lot more than I could at a faster pace. It just so happens that now that I realize it, startups are that environment, right? There's no better place to go learn faster yeah. and volume. You don't have an option. You don't have an option, exactly. So I think I tended to gravitate towards those kind of environments. So it was less about being a startup founder or going to work at a startup. It was much more about, okay, where can I learn the most, the fastest and gain the most exposure? So how important is that, do you feel, in a founder or an early stage hires? Or do they need to have that? Does that need to be part of the DNA yeah. of people you bring in? Yeah, absolutely. And Mark, we support some amazing founders here in Atlanta. Atlanta and across the Southeast. And it's just, it's a joy to like watch how hungry these people are to learn. I mean, I think to be a world-class founder, you have to have that mentality, whether it's reading books or blogs or writing on your own or just being really inquisitive. I think yeah, absolutely. Yes. That, that is a requirement, I think, for a founder to really be successful for sure. Do you still have that? I would never compare myself to some of the entrepreneurs we support in Endeavor and some of the board members that I'm lucky enough to work for, guys like David Cummings and Jeff Arnold. I think everyone's wired differently. And I would never compare myself to any of those people. I read a lot. I think for what I do, you have to be very intellectually curious. And, and Endeavor works across industries. So we're not just talking to technology companies. So not only do you need to be curious, you also need to be curious across a lot of different things. I'd say yes, I, but I don't want to compare myself to some of the people that I, I'm lucky enough to work with. So, But you would say your drive is more to learn than it is to build. Yeah. I think it's a mix of both. I think if I had to prioritize, I'd probably say learn first and build second. I've been lucky enough to be in building modes throughout my career, even after the French company I mentioned earlier. After grad school, I ended up getting recruited to go um, work at a big old service bureau company called Ceridian, which people who haven't heard of them just think ADP, but for mid-market size companies. And people who work in those mid-market companies know who Ceridian is. And they were in the process of basically brink of bankruptcy. They were private equity owned, had a ton of debt, and they had one choice and one choice only, which was to try and convert to being a SaaS cloud business. And they were lucky enough to acquire a really early, amazingly run SaaS business called Dayforce. And so I was brought in right after that acquisition to try and help transform the company as part of a team, obviously. And so that was a lot of learning, but also a lot of building too. I ended up running their global payroll division, which was taking an old, really bad product and bad kind of service environment and making it a SaaS business 
for the last two and a half years I was there. And that was a lot of building. I was writing SQL code and trying to figure out how the Dayforce product work. How did the existing product that didn't really work or how is it supposed to work? Talking to customers, trying to understand what kind of product they would want to buy. How did you first hear about Endeavor? One of my best friends from business school, who I kept in touch with for several years after business school, a guy named Michael Patrick, amazing human being, one of my closest friends. We get together every quarter while I was at Deloitte and then at Ceridian. And you know, he, we would swap business ideas with the hopes of maybe starting a company together someday. And one day he called me up and said, Hey, I'm leaving my really good investment job at this real estate firm to start this business called Thanks Jeffrey. And the idea was to have a concierge service for busy people where you could pay somebody a certain amount per week. And this person would come in, they'd help you get your groceries delivered. They tie to your house up. They would manage the Comcast guy coming when you can't be there, the things that you don't want to deal with. What year are we talking about? This is 2016. Everyone's talking about Uber. So the Uberization of everything happening. And Michael saw an opportunity to, to create that kind of a business, but for you know a different market segment and a, and a different service, obviously. And so three months into his business, he asked me to join his company full-time as a co-founder. And I wanted to do it in my heart, but in my gut, I wasn't sure the business would work. And more importantly, my wife was having our third child and thinking like two months and and she wasn't, she was full-time at home. So I was the only yeah. breadwinner. It was you yeah. know, classic. Should I take the risk? And so I, so I told him, look, if we raise a certain amount of money and we hit a certain amount of traction, I'm in. But I just can't do that yet. And we never raised the money and we never got the traction actually flattened out. And then he ended up shutting the company down after a little over a year. But that experience then just got me into, I want to go work with entrepreneurs or become an entrepreneur myself um, or maybe invest in them. And so that started my journey into, okay, what what's going on in Atlanta? Let's talk to scaling companies. Let's talk to investors here. And actually, Michael, the founder of the company, called me up one day and said, hey, my friend Rodney, who runs Chick-fil-A's foundation, is on the board of this thing I've never heard of. It's supporting entrepreneurs. They're trying to get somebody to run in Atlanta, you should check it out. And I'd never heard of Endeavor. I looked at running a nonprofit, making less money, walking away from equity <laughs> at Ceridian. Like none of it made sense, yeah. which is actually entrepreneurship. Like it doesn't make sense. Yep. So I did all of those things. I interviewed with guys like Jeff Arnold and obviously Rodney and David on my board and was like, this is a cool, not only an amazing organization, but just a unique concept with its focus on scaling companies and not startups and its nonprofit sort of structure that'd be 100% on the side of the entrepreneur, but still have the ability to invest through our global fund. This could be the best way for me to just jump headfirst into the startup ecosystem in Atlanta, but also create a legacy, right? This is an organization to hopefully be right. for decades. Every time I meet people, I think probably when I met you at first too, I think actually you might've been the few that heard of Endeavor, I think, because you have a global lens, but if you didn't have a global entrepreneurship lens and you're in the US, you probably have never yeah. heard of Endeavor. Who was the they wanting to come to Atlanta and why did they want to come? Yeah. Endeavor has a, we call it a pool model. So we get pulled into new markets to open an affiliate office and all of our affiliate offices are independent. We have our own payroll to run and P&L to maintain and everything here, independent of the global organization. Lane Moore actually was the first person to really see Endeavor in action. And Lane was one of the first investors in Rubicon Global. Rubicon was based in Louisville and he convinced the co-founders to move to Atlanta. He joined as their CFO as this sort of early co-founder on the finance side to help them scale and raise money. And the co-founders of Rubicon had already started an Endeavor Louisville office. And Lane got to know one of um, the co-founders of Endeavor through that too, because he was also an investor in, in Rubicon, a guy named Peter Kellner. So Lane knew Peter, he knew of Endeavor, and then he saw Louisville getting an office and said, wait a minute, like Louisville's <laughs> great, but Lane is way better. Maybe he doesn't need it, but then he understood how it worked and 
and he was the main one to raise his hand. So he went to Boland Jones and said, Boland, like, I need, I, you need to be the guy that helps me get it here. Boland is close friends with Jeff and, or talked to Jeff about getting involved and Rodney and Sanjay Gupta and others, the network effect sort of took over to get our founding board put together. What's your assessment of whether or not Atlanta needed it? It is an interesting question. Endeavor operates in markets that we call them emerging uh, ecosystems for entrepreneurship. And that that's a, that's a wide spectrum, right? We have Endeavor Ecuador, which is like really early mm-hmm. stages. I would say needs Endeavor, but might even be too early for Endeavor in some cases, maybe not Ecuador mm-hmm. specifically. And then you have offices like ours. And I'd say you, we just launched one in Colorado based in Denver. They've got five Series A's getting announced every other week. And Atlanta's right, kind of hitting right. the same sort of motion too. Endeavor has a wide range of where emerging ecosystems sit. We're definitely on the more mature end. What I would say though, Mark, and I still see this today, is there is still a more conservative culture in this in Atlanta in the Southeast for startups. So that generally speaking reduces the size of outcomes that founders mm-hmm. can have because they're likely going to bootstrap it longer than they would have otherwise. So they're going to raise mm-hmm. less capital. They're probably conditioned to think that capital here in our region is sharp elbows and 4x liquidation preferences and all kinds of crazy stuff, which is actually valid right. in some cases. Like they should be <laughs> in some cases a little leery. So They'll raise less money. They'll scale to a lower degree. We've seen that in our work just in the four years we've been here. So I think to answer your question, absolutely. There is definitely room for Endeavor here in Atlanta and the Southeast, especially to be this organization that can help push founders to think bigger, to have more confidence in scaling a company that could IPO, a real company, not a, yeah, everyone wants to build a billion dollar business, but like really providing a pathway for them to be able to do that and having this unique independent organization that gives them support along the way. I've spent 20 years now down here trying to figure out some of that, why we have all of the difficult stuff for an ecosystem that you could never build if you wanted to try. Have you started somewhere and you said, well, you know what I'd like to have? I'd like to have three, four or five universities within a stone's throw of each other. I'd like to have the busiest airport in the world. I'd like to hit fiber everywhere I dig a hole. I wouldn't mind having a deep water port right down the road. Things you could never develop on your own. Yeah. Um, we've got all that. And and yet the dynamics are what you just described. And in the past, they were even worse. Why do you think it all developed that way? And what kinds of things do we do to to move the needle? That's a great question, Mark. So this is one, one guy's opinion. So the, the caveat of caveats. One piece of it is that if you look at jobs in in Atlanta and frankly, our region, it wasn't that long ago that most jobs were in rural communities in Georgia. And granted, they were in Silicon Valley too, back in 1940 and 1950. Silicon Valley is probably like 500 people or something. But if you think of the sort of gold rush culture of San Francisco, just using them as the the benchmark, if you will, of kind of entrepreneurship flywheel, they have that kind of risk-taking culture back to the, the gold rush days of the 1800s. Atlanta, the Southeast, we have a more conservative culture. I think a less risk-taking culture when it comes to new business creation, which I think tends to lead towards more traditional business creation, manufacturing, physical products. And if you think of big names in Atlanta, you have an airline, a beverage maker, a home improvement retailer. You have a logistics, you know, delivery company too, sorry, UPS. And, And by the way, what Delta was not founded here. UPS wasn't founded here. Coke was and Home Depot was. And then you've got the big real estate, Atlanta's a huge real estate town. So if you look at where the wealth sits, most of the wealth has sat in people who are used to traditional investments. And if they're going to get 15 to 20% IRR 
on a really low risk apartment complex they're going to build or a warehouse right, out right. in the Plains, Georgia, why would I not invest there, but then go put money in Mark or Aaron's venture fund? That doesn't make any sense. I think the culture is those two big pieces being used to traditional businesses and then the capital that you really need to fuel these riskier bets and knowing that they're risky and being okay with a lot of failure. We have a high cost of failure, mm-hmm. whereas to really get the flywheel going, you have to lower that cost of failure significantly. Yeah, I don't no, know. I agree. The re- real estate, I think, is one of the biggest contributing factors to the entire thing. Real estate people basically only do real estate and they wouldn't put $100,000 into a company, but they'll personally guarantee $60 million worth of loans. That's right. right? On, on real estate projects that they feel like they can understand. So walk me through your decision then. You've done large consulting. You've done the big startup development that turned into a big success. You've done essentially what's a turnaround, a big large company turnaround slash pivot that you ran. That person goes to a venture capital fund at the end of all of that. Why did you not go do that and instead decide you were going to run a nonprofit in Atlanta? Although it's related to all that, but what was that decision point for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I tend to be a bit of an idealist, I guess. So the ideals of something like Endeavor, I aligned really well with their values and having this 100% on the entrepreneur side organization that's independent that can really help these founders scale. That resonated really well with me. The second thing was in some ways, I guess I'm a franchise owner, right? I don't own anything, but I'm the guy who started the Atlanta franchise, but it's a startup. Starting an Endeavor office anywhere in the world, it is like a startup. I had months where I was barely making payroll. It took several years to get people to take us seriously here. We still run into people who don't know who we are, who probably are very skeptical of what we do. All things you get when you start something. I think I mentioned it earlier, like the idea of selfishly creating a legacy that will last for years, no matter who's going to run it after me, I think was really appealing. So to summarize two things, one is that this idea of giving back and doing something unique for Atlanta and for our region, because we're really in the Southeast now, not just Atlanta. And then secondly, being able to really found something, like start something, not completely from scratch, but really getting that experience of starting something very early on, I thought was was very compelling. There aren't many VCs here in the Southeast. Maybe someday I'll start my own fund and that'll be the way to do it. And this will be a great way to have entree into lots of smart people and have a better understanding what the market really needs versus just popping up another firm. So Endeavor sits within the startup resourcing ecosystem. Explain what the difference is, where it's where it fits in that whole ecosystem. And maybe a good way to do that is to, is to walk me through an ideal deal, how it came about and how the process works and how it progresses over time and the, the kinds of differences you can make. Since at least primarily, it's not about investment of capital. It's about investment of not monetary capital, of other kinds of capital. Yeah. Yeah. And and if we're lucky enough, sometimes it is a monetary through our catalyst fund. Sometimes we get lumped into the, call it accelerate startup accelerator grouping. I I like to say we're not an accelerator, that we're a network. We are for founders who can trust us and obviously they have to get selected. And, but then we help them leverage our network across mentorship, across capital, across new market entry, including around the world, across talent. And that's the levers they can pull. And we obviously help them do that on a full-time basis for the ones that are in our portfolio. So we're unique in that this isn't, let's go to a seminar with Aaron and Mark to talk about product market fit or about raising money. This is very curated, high touch. We don't work with many companies. And when we do, we put a lot of effort into them. The second thing I'd mention is most startup organizations, almost all of them, really, I can't, I haven't come across one that is really at the stage we're at. They're all focused on 
super early stage. So like Techstars, Georgia Tech's ATDC programs, Y Combinator, 500 Startups, all the kind of big names, Boomtown, they're all startup. Sometimes just an idea on a napkin, sometimes like an early product. We are actually at the scaling stage. So out of the 14 companies in our local Atlanta portfolio, I think our average revenue at the end of 2020 was like 21 or 22 million a year. So these are significant companies generating a lot of revenue with the potential to become worth a billion dollars plus someday. So that's unique too, I'd say in terms of the both the structure of how we work with companies, it's very concentrated and custom, but also the stage we focus on, which is, I like to call it anything after series A is, is in our sweet spot. And then from an investing perspective, if you get selected and you have a qualifying round, we'll invest in your company. We're looking for three main things. First is the entrepreneur. That's probably 60 to 70% of the weight of what we look for. Is this somebody who is already thinking big and executing big, is confident enough to really go for it, but also humble enough to take feedback? That last piece being super important, because if you're going to join a network like Endeavor and you don't want anyone's advice for anything, we're wasting each other's time. And then the fourth part for the entrepreneurs, do they want to pay it forward? So we have this interesting pay it forward model where entrepreneurs, if they get selected, they donate. And then if they have large success in the future, they also donate or financially support Endeavor in some way. And sometimes it's investing in our fund, which we love, or maybe they join our board and they donate that way. Is this someone who truly wants to become a part of the future of Atlanta's entrepreneurial ecosystem or the Southeast entrepreneurial ecosystem? And then the other two legs of our stool, very similar to venture capitalists. First is the business. Is it a unique product or service? We are industry agnostic. Thrive Farmers Coffee is one of our companies. We have Chime Solutions, which is a call center tech-enabled business. VCs wouldn't traditionally invest in those companies. In our view, they have the potential to scale. So can this business scale? Is it unique? Is the market moving in the direction where this company is going that they can take advantage of? Kind of the normal things a venture investor would look at. Right. Is this company poised to really 10x from here over the next five years? And can it really take advantage of Endeavor's network? I, I like to say we're like a power grid. And if you plug this company in Endeavor's network power grid, we can help accelerate their growth going forward. One good example, a company that had a big impact on here locally is a company called Lease Query. George Z, the CEO and founder, and his co-founder, Chris Ramsey, their chief revenue officer, met us like two months into starting Endeavor Atlanta in 2017. They had 10 employees. Yeah. They were sitting on a good bit of cash. They sell yeah. a software product that is reg regulation-driven because accounting boards are changing how you have to account for leases. So there's this big complicated thing coming down the road and they were growing quickly, but they weren't hiring people. And I think they would admit they had a certain size of what their business could be. And then they started our selection process and they met with guys like David and Bullen and they're going, okay, the next time we get together in two months, I want you to have hired 25 people. <laughs> yeah, And they're like, we only have 10 people in our company. Yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> so they went through probably... 15 interviews to get selected with probably 20 to 25 different people across our global mm -hmm. network, including folks like the the late great founder of Humana, David Jones Sr. in Louisville. They got the interview with him at their international selection panel. Chris and George talk about how every time they come to an Endeavor interview, they're like, oh, we're so busy. We got to go to this interview. This is back when everything was in person, by the way. So, um, right. Yeah, sure. Seems <laughs> like forever ago. They would be like, oh, this, well, I don't want to go. It's another Endeavor interview. And then they would go to the interview and they would get feedback that would fundamentally change what they were thinking about for how to grow their business. And they would leave the meeting and go meet for three hours over coffee to figure out how to implement whatever they just heard, which was like, that's ideal. You've got founders who are nope. focused on revenue and building a business, their heads down. 
That's great. Two, they're open to feedback. And three, they're like implementing it during selection. So that was the most amazing thing to see with these guys is it wasn't like, hey, this is great. And if we get in, we'll probably implement some of the stuff. These guys were doing it in real time and they would come back to the next interview and go, oh, yeah, we, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you, we hired 10 more people over the last month. We're like, oh, that's awesome. Okay. It took like 12 months for the whole process wow. to go from start to end. They were at about 100. So they about 10x their company and employee size in that time. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of it was pushing them to think bigger and have confidence that they could spend the money they were sitting on in their bank account because they were getting most of their customers to pay three years cash up front for their software. They were bootstrapped. They had tons of money. And George is an accountant by by training, risk super risk averse. So he's sitting (laughs) on two two years of cash flow. George, it's okay to go down 12 months. You can use the year and you're not going to go out of business. But they took all of it in stride and implemented it. Revenue, like I said, I think was like eight to 10 X over that year. And that was them executing. That was an endeavor. And then it was tactical advice too. Okay. We're a B2B SaaS business. How do I create an effective BDR model? How do I hire the right marketer that can feed into that? Who owns the BDRs? Is it marketing? Is it sales? How do I build my sales team out for account execs for demos that have closed that are deals that are moving forward and bigger accounts. They got a lot of tactical advice along the way there too. And they were getting hit up by investors left and right. So they got that advice too. It's you don't need the money. You can keep bootstrapping it. That's totally fine. And if you got the money, here's what that would mean. And they actually went through a big fundraising process. They decided it was worth raising money. And we helped along, you know, in that process. And then they ended up closing Mm -hmm. a $40 million round with Goldman Sachs back in late 2019. Talk to me about a deal that didn't get done. Tell me principles about people that know about it, feel like they would be a good fit maybe that you all spend time with. What, what are the things that keep it from actually happening? I think for the ones that haven't got selected, you can group it into a couple of groupings. One would be the too early grouping. Sometimes that's just revenue concentration issues. So you've got you know five customers and one of them makes up 70% of your revenue even though your revenue looks nice and series A-ish, that's happened before. By the way, our process is is iterative. So most people that don't get selected get invited to come back. So it's not a, we're not going to invest. Sorry. It's, hey, yeah. you made it to the local level of selection and you didn't pass. We'd love to work with you to get you to come back in a year. I'd say lumpy growth, companies with really long sales cycles or just roller coaster growth rate over the previous couple of years. Those I think have been challenging. We had one that was an older business, amazing founder that was trying to have a different go to market channel. So going from B to B to B to C and the, the B to B core business growth wasn't there. It was okay, but it wasn't high growth, which is a key for us. I think that's one thing that we see for folks that contact us. And we've gotten a lot better over the last couple of years of just telling people up front, look like you're, you got a great business, but you're, unless your growth rate is like 50% or higher year over year, if you're lower revenue, it's got to be triple digits growth rate. You're not a fit right now. Let's keep talking. And if you hit those kind of benchmarks, let's get serious about selection. So growth rate, I'd say is a thing that we run into a lot and like real growth rate too. Of course, you talk to founders, there's always 10 deals that are about to close so figuring out, okay, <laughs> right. what's the probability of any of the thing? And what does that do for your growth rate? How long does it take to implement the revenue? It's amazing how many, and I don't think this is it, this isn't founders doing it, necessarily doing it on purpose, but when you dig into their financials, you find out that things aren't as they seem in many cases. Yeah. What's the due diligence process like for, for you all? Ours is, uh, it's an increasing scale of intimacy as they move through the process. So <laughs> 
So they're revealing right. more information throughout the interview process. There's four steps to selection. The first one is our, we call it a first opinion review. That's our staff, myself, digging in with the founder, usually like three to four hours looking at the basics of the business. And then second stage is basically mentor calls. We call them second opinion reviews. Usually have four to six of those. They can be from anywhere in our network around the world. And, and we actually add a lot of service value through that process because it's very thoughtful finding somebody who can impact your business. If you don't get selected, Mark, you're going to get amazing advice and you're going to expand your network right. and change your business forever. So there's, there's a set of those. And then there's a local selection panel. And then there's an international selection panel. And both of those panels, you have to get unanimous approval to keep going. And then in the case of the international panel, you have to have unanimous approval from six interviewers to get into Endeavor. And so... The diligence, a lot of it is us taking notes and then asking follow-up questions after these interviews. And, but at the local su- selection panel level and the international level, we actually build out an eight to nine page profile of the company, which includes cap table, financials, their growth story, their founding story. It's a narrative, but it has a ton of detail in it. We don't do customer calls generally. We'll do you know background calls if we don't know the right. people or can't really reference check them within our network. So we're not too invasive on that end. And if they have a lead investor already, if they've raised a Series A from someone we know, that's obviously that's a lot of diligence that already happened. We're not going to make you go through all that again. So you mentioned that uh, sometimes you'll take a company that's maybe not suitable for VC. So in what ways do you mean that? And give me some at least categorical examples because it sounds like a very much a VC selection process. Here's a great example. Chime Solutions, I mentioned them earlier. They're a, a tech-enabled call center business. The, the founder, Mark Wilson, had a previous call center business called Ryla Technologies that he scaled and sold, and he's doing it again. This is not a VC-backable business. It's low margin, high turnover from an employee perspective. He's probably going to hit 4,000 employees after starting the company in 2016 this year, maybe 5,000. You know, He'll probably be on the Inc. 500 this coming year, because he's had a, he's having an amazing year this year. And they've got a unique model where they set up call centers in underserved communities. Their headquarters are in Clayton County in the South Lake Mall in Clayton County, just south of Atlanta. Clayton County has the highest unemployment percentage in all of Metro Atlanta. Mark took the old JC Penney's of South Lake Mall, which was about to completely shut down as a mall, and mm-hmm. renovated it into a 2,500-seat call center. And he has huge Fortune 500 customers where they do Tier 1 you know, support for things like healthcare annual enrollment. Again, not a VC backable business, but this is a company that's already generating a lot of revenue, generating a ton of jobs. A bonus for us is it's got this social mission to it. That's not a requirement in Endeavor, but hey, that's amazing too. Can scale, and this guy, sh- he's done it before. He's shown how to scale a business like this. I think I could tell the answer to this question from the things that you've said before, but I, I ask it of everybody in your kind of a position. A, a founder comes to you, the business is perfect. Like it's a really a perfect scenario for Endeavor in all of the, let's say, economic terms. This could be a big one. It, it could be a, a really important one to have on the books or to have in the portfolio, a good one for the chapter. But the founder is the worst. The founder is not somebody you'd want to hang out with. What do you do? How do you evaluate that kind of opportunity in the position you're in? If we're doing our job, brilliant jerks won't make it through the selection process. <laughs> I guess I would start with that. We're not perfect and no investor is perfect either. We generally, and, and maybe we have the unique position of being able to do this as a nonprofit. I've had those tough conversations with a few founders. If the business is really on an you know amazing trajectory to your point and kind of ticks mm-hmm. all the boxes from growth and a potential future impact perspective, 
we normally give the founder the benefit of the doubt to have an interview or two within our network. So we have the luxury of, of being able to do that if we think it's worth it. And we've had instances where, yeah, it was clear that they fit the category <laughs> or the profile that you described. And I've had those one-on-one conversations where I've just told those founders that. And I, I think the biggest disservice that we can do as an organization, and I would argue any investor or support organization for entrepreneurs can do to a founder is to not be transparent with them. I think we just have to have the courage to have a hard conversation with the founder to go, look, like we just spent an hour on a call. You talked for 58 minutes of it. The mentor got two minutes in. This isn't a good fit. And I'm sorry, but it's not. And this is why we're an organization that, you know, helps founders think bigger and provides feedback. And if this doesn't look like you can take feedback right now, and maybe it's just right now, I don't know. So right. we try to have those tough conversations. I think, again, it's, I think it's a disservice to founders to not. What would you say are the, is your biggest pieces of advice that you've learned through working with Endeavor? What's the most important couple pieces of advice you'd give to a founder who wants to produce the kind of outcomes that you all end up producing with folks? What, what do they need to focus on? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I, look, I think in the end, it comes down to team. I think founders have to just go in assuming you've got to spend a lot of time recruiting the best best, hiring the best for you, right? The best contextually for your company and then nurturing them because startups are crazy and things change every second, finding pathways for people to continue to succeed and grow. And obviously if they're not a fit, they're not a fit. But my advice is really just focus as much as you can on your people throughout the journey from when you first start all the way through, if you're lucky enough to have a huge exit or go public or something amazing like that. The founders that we work with that are having a lot of success, they spend significant amount of time on that, especially once you found product market fit, especially in the Southeast where we have, to your point, we have amazing smart people, but we don't have a deep bench of experienced folks who have scaled businesses. You just have to assume you're going to spend even more time cold calling or cold LinkedIn messaging the person who lives in New York or California to come to Atlanta, or, hey, you can work remote and come here once a month. You're going to spend more time than those folks do out on those coast, finding the right people. That'd be my advice is just really think hard about your whole process around recruiting, hiring, retaining, growing people, like spend a lot of time on that. Talk about legacy. Tell me about why you're doing this and what you hope it ends up as, how you hope to be remembered in the context of all of it. Yeah, that's a pretty heavy question. A couple of things. I think if we look like 10 to 20 years down the road in the Southeast, I would love to be really a critical component to this sort of flywheel of high growth entrepreneurship really taking root in our region. I think that would be one. The second would be we are a premier network, so we're not for everybody and it's merit-based. So I I want us to also have that sort of brand where if you're a founder, you start your company, you're immediately thinking at some point we're going to apply to Endeavor and hopefully become a part of that network. I don't know how many years that will take, but that would be the second point. And then the third point, we have a long way to go in terms of inclusion and entrepreneurship in general, not just in our region, but across the world and especially in the US. We have our own unique challenges. I would like Endeavor to be a critical player in helping unlock amazing founders that you and I might not know or see, but unlocking their potential and providing kind of an open merit-based platform for them to scale their business beyond what they ever thought they could. We just launched a program that's pre-Endeavor called Scale Up ATL, where we're going to select four to five Black-led startups that are at C to Series A stage. And we're literally interviewing them this week and hopefully selecting them in the next few weeks. We're taking the very kind of early first step for us to 
to hopefully make that happen at an even faster rate than it is today. And we obviously have amazing black founders like George, at least Corey, and like Mark at Chime Solutions. I think amplifying their success is going to be critical too. And they're already starting to do that in the community.